Hello and welcome to Genetically Speaking. In our first season, we delved into the careers of our members within the American Society of Human Genetics. We had great conversations with genetic counselors, researchers, educators, clinicians, and more. We were able to explore their unique journeys and the impact they've made in the world of human genetics and genomics. If this is the first time you're tuning in, welcome and we're glad to have you here. For our repeat listeners, welcome back. I hope you hear something new that stays with you. Thanks for joining us in revisiting Season 1 of Genetically Speaking. I am your host, Dr. Chris Gunter, and I'm joined today by Dr. Wendy Chung. Thank you so much for joining us for this interview for ASHG. So can you tell us briefly a little bit about, I know for you this is going to be difficult because you're doing so many things, tell us briefly some of your research and what you're doing and where you're based. Sure. So um, I'm a medical geneticist at based at Columbia University. I've been doing human genetics research for about the past 25-ish years or so. And if it's a human and has genes, basically we study it. That's the, the requirement. But this goes across a wide range of disorders, um, largely in the monogenic, highly penetrant space. So rare diseases is kind of my shtick. Uh, but it goes across birth defects, conditions related to the heart, so congenital heart disease, pulmonary hypertension, cardiomyopathies. We also do some things that are rare causes of common conditions, so things like breast cancer, pancreatic cancer as well. And as we do this, we also think about really the implementation side of things. So clinically, how you translate that to clinical implementation, and then as you're doing it, speaking about some of the LC issues. So, you know, how should you think about this in terms of doing things ethically as well? That's a lot. Yep. Yeah. So I primarily know you from working on autism and, and large autism-related projects. But in preparing for this interview, I read that you have discovered 41 diseases. Is it more now? Yeah. So we're actually up to 46 as okay. of morning. Figured. So tell me about that. That's amazing. So a lot of what we do, and I'll just look at autism specifically. So autism is a common condition, one in 59 folks with this. But on the other hand, what we study are some of the rare genetic causes of this. Uh, we'll eventually get to some of the common genetic contributions and non-genetic contributions as well. But right now, we understand better the rare genetic space for this. And as we've thought about autism, we thought about how can we do genetic research on scale? So really making it accessible to everyone so that we get better representation and be able to include everyone as we're doing this. So we have this initiative called SPARK, which is Simon's Foundation Powering Autism Research for Knowledge which provides a long-term infrastructure and freely accessible data for everything that we do. So it includes exome genome sequencing for all. We're now over 225,000 participants within the study. Also offers a research match opportunity. So researchers to be able to use this and do their research, their own research questions, but using this cohort so that we can make it easier for researchers to do research and then share that information back with the participants. So we got this as a, a scalable model for other people to do for both common and rare diseases. That's great. And so the 46 diseases you discovered. So 46 diseases go through all sorts of different causes of birth defects, of autism, for pulmonary hypertension, just innumerable different things. I'm embarrassed to say a couple of them now named after me, but I was going to ask you that. <laughs> so for, for none of my own doing, I actually don't understand this process with all the sons in our own pops up sometimes your name. And, oh. but, but I'm very proud to be affiliated with those conditions. And we get to do great things like family meetings, work with the families, both around the world as well as right here in the United States. And it's really, it's a tremendous honor to have my name uh, as part of what's associated with those family groups. Absolutely. And that's what I was going to ask you is, what is it like to be the one to tell the families that you're the first? Yeah. So um, with that, um, we've done this now 46 times in terms of being able to say you're the first person in the world that we know of that right. has this condition, right? We, we know there has to be many others out there. 
Um, I will say uh, I was just corresponding by email with one of my families where they were the first, and they were the first for a long time. They felt quite lonely at the beginning. Um, but they actually now have found their tribe or their group in terms of this, their extended family. Um, I have to say that feeling um, when I see the families get together in person the first, for the first time, it's just this emotional, you can you just can't describe it, what it feels like to have been lost and now found. Um, and, you know, moms and dads and kids pulling out their phones and sharing and, and realizing it's like this aha moment. They say, gosh, when they were a year old, they were like identical twins, uh, you know, like separated at birth. And, you know, for some of these conditions, it is true. The same individual has the same exact mutation and they really do look like sisters or brothers or um, extended family members. And that sense of just feeling like someone else understands where you've been and where you're going and can help you get there. And and um, my job in this, I describe myself as job description of Sherpa. Um, so I help people on their journey up the mountain. Um, and as we do it together, it's just tremendously rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. That must be. That's great. But it sounds like that's something that keeps you motivated to to keep going, obviously, in the lab. But the staff would also like me to ask you, what do you do outside of work, if there is any time outside of work? <laughs> you need to keep going there. So um, the great thing is that we end up really with an extended family, not just a patient family, but an extended professional family. And so one of the amazing things is that I do get the opportunity to do a lot of traveling, um, so by going to family meetings around the country, around the world, uh, professional meetings. And I try when I do to be able to actually get out of the conference room and see a few things here or there. So I, I'd love to be able to do that. I'm on my way to Peru tomorrow, actually, um, to do that. But, um, and the other thing is, obviously, just I've got two wonderful sons and a wonderful husband and uh, extended family, and they're just um, the joy of my life. So being able to hang with them is, is a lot of fun. Okay, so then while we have you here, do you have any summer travel reservations or recommendations then to give me suggestions? So, um, where would you go back to? So, well, there are a lot of great places, but my son is going off to college in the fall. So, what we have decided to do is have a family retreat. We're going to unplug. Well, we're just, which is serious. It's, it is serious, um, but we're just going to unplug and hang together and before he goes off on the next phase of his life, just be able to do some things together. So, we're definitely going to the Bahamas and, uh, He's going to Australia. I think he's leaving me behind on that one. But, uh, and, you know, we want to see the Great Barrier Reef before yeah. it goes yeah. away. Yeah. So, yeah. So, anyway, and then we'll have a couple other trips in there. Well, that sounds great. Yeah. Now I'm jealous. But, <laughs> so, so tell us a little bit about what inspired you to specialize in genetics. Yeah. So, um, for me, this was a sort of long story. As I was an undergraduate, actually, I was a biochemistry and economics major. And um, had as what he does. As, as Jack, how did he combination, right? Yeah. Um, no, but I got kind of bored and they both seemed interesting. So, um, but as part of that, I had the real fortune to be able to spend a summer, actually more than just one summer, but started as a summer um, looking at Enolketon area research at the National Institutes of Health. And I really got to see the very basic biochemistry, the patients, you know, that interface and that back and forth. And that really is what got me hooked. Um, and so I loved doing biochemistry. I thought I'd continue doing biochemistry, but at the time, and this was right exactly the year I started my MD-PhD program was literally the year the Human Genome Project started. And so as I saw that and having had having spent some time at NIH, had a little bit more of the long-term vision of where things could go if you, in fact, had all the genes at your fingertips. Um, and as in, a, it, well, at the time, a lot of my professors were bemoaning the Human Genome Project because of how much it would cost. 
and we're saying, oh, well, this is just, you know, this top-down stuff. They don't know what they're doing. It's a very bad idea. But again, I'm trained as an economist, and one of the rules that you learned was follow the money. And so looking at what the budgets were in terms of the investment, I thought there are really a lot of smart people here. They can't just be totally full of it. There must be something to this. Um, and so then realized that I could be one of those first people that would train human genetics as it was evolving as a field. Um, and it would give me the opportunity to skate to where the puck was going to be, uh, not have to simply do everything else that people had done before. And that is one of those pearls I'll tell the trainees that are out there, yeah. is do try and look forward to where the field is going to be by the time you finish all your training. It may be a while. I certainly had forecasted it was going to take a long time for the human genome project to finish up. It was going to take me a long time to finish training. So you want to have that sort of long view within there. Um, but in doing so, I was sort of perfectly poised to do people where we were making this up as we were going along. We're still making it up as we're going along. And so you didn't have to be well established. You didn't have to be the best in your field because there was no one who was the best in their field. Um, and so since then, it's really been me growing up, I feel like, with the Genome Project, um, really being able to, I, I remember as a graduate student, um, the trainings won't remember this, but in the very old days, we didn't have thermocyclers to do PCRs. So, oh yeah, you know, they're going from, you know, the hot, you know, sort of uh, hot baths to the bucket of ice. ice and being able yep. to literally with their timer go back and forth. I was so thrilled when they came up with yep. thermocyclers. Um, but growing up through that has given me a certain appreciation of what we can do when we sequence a genome within a day or two now at this point and interpret it. Um, it's just, you know, sort of awe-inspiring to me. Um, so it gives me some... Also, uh, I think reasonableness in terms of where we're going and how long it's going to take to get there. It's not going to happen overnight, but uh, it's going to happen within our lifetimes. Absolutely. I remember an under, in my undergraduate at Journal Club where we were reading the uh, paper about newfangled PCR technique. So, yeah, I think we're about the same age. <laughs> yeah. Well, different now. So any hot tips then for the trainees as to where the puck's going to be? I think that's a great analysis. So the puck's going to be data science. Um, so in terms of this, the great thing I hope is that not just me, but uh, a lot of us feel very strongly in terms of being able to do open science and have access to data. And then it's going to take a lot of smart people, not all of whom are trained as geneticists, by the way, but people that are just incredible data scientists, um, software engineers, quantitative biologists, just quantitative scientists, period. And even, uh, I, I want to make sure this is very clear, the patients themselves who have these conditions who really help us to see their perspective and what they're living and how it impacts them because they have insights into the biology that you won't understand unless you actually listen to them. Um, so it's all those, it's really, um, it's a team sport in terms of doing all of this, uh, but in terms of the skill set to start working on right now and had I to do it all over again, what I would be doing is very heavily focusing in data sciences, being able to get that quantitative training um, being able to code, and uh, you don't have to be the best programmer in the world, but you do have to be able to use do some of your own coding, really going up on the statistics. And, um, you know, I don't necessarily think you have to do differential equations in this, but statistics and really good quantitative analysis, data visualization, uh, all important ways for us to move the field forward. And, and as I said, uh, I think people are going to be astounded at how much data are available in the next five to 10 years. Some of that, which you're generating yourself. Through your We're trying. Absolutely. Yeah. So not biochemistry and economics, civil major, but maybe like genetics and, you know, computer science yeah. or something like that. Yeah. yeah. And and, and uh, you bring up a great point, Chris, which is that the individuals who actually didn't think about really the application as well as the tools um, that are duly trained in terms of the biology and the genetics as well as the quantitative sciences, um, you guys are going to be incredibly valuable. Um, and, and most people come to it from one direction or the other, but those who can stick right at the middle of that interface 
um, those are the people who are going to be the real movers and shakers of the field. Absolutely. And I know now as well. That's true. So um, in some of the other interviews, we've talked a lot about the importance of mentorship. And you've talked about great, giving great trips for, uh, tips for trainees. What should they look for in a mentor? What has helped you a lot? Yeah. So um, number one is it doesn't take just one mentor. Um, I think incredibly um, important to think about there are different mentors who will do different things for you. And um, it's important to get one person who's kind of your primary mentor, but in many cases um, to have even half a dozen mentors who are doing different things for you. Um, as you're doing it, I think it's really important to be clear with your mentor what the expectations are, and then for your mentor to be clear with you as a mentee uh, what those expectations are. And so from the very beginning, hopefully that's something that can uh, be a shared responsibility and, and be very clear. Um, as you're doing it, mentors are great people just in terms of being able to do everything from giving you advice on your thesis to your postdoc, um, importantly making introductions to the right people, uh, getting to the table in terms of opportunities. But it gets into the idea of sponsorship. Exactly. Right? Yeah, as well. But, um, yes. And 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 also, I also say there are just things in terms of important life moments. Uh, you know, some of the things in terms of being able to observe closely how you work and how you could work better. Um, being able to be honest with you and give you some feedback in terms of you're too much of a perfectionist. Don't let, don't let perfectionate be the enemy of the good. Or on the other hand, you're being a little sloppy there. You need to tighten things up. Um, so, you know, everything like that from, I will put a plug out, uh, obviously I'm a woman, um, and I'll say that there are some special things that it takes in terms of women and our reproductive lives and being able to navigate things, uh, sometimes the way we do science, sometimes the way we speak or don't speak sometimes. Um, but I think it's really good to have, in particular, if you are a woman in science or in medicine, um, to have someone who knows about that and is also able to give you some coaching on those issues and to sometimes have your back and be able to um, promote you at times when I don't think it's necessarily intentional, but where other people might overlook you. Um, and so whether it happens to be that you're a woman, whether it happens to be that you're uh, other ways that you might be less represented in science uh, and quantitative science in particular, it's good if you can have someone who knows specifically what some of the things that might be more challenging for you. Um, and within this, like I said, I, I want to also underscore, I think in genetics in particular, one of the things that's most critical for our field is diversity and inclusion right now. That is that I think a lot of genetic research has been done uh, by and for individuals who happen to be from a certain part of the world. I'm not blaming anyone. It's just organically the way it sort of started. Uh, but if we don't become more diverse in terms of both who's doing the science and who's included in the research, we will have even larger disparities in terms of healthcare and outcomes. Um, and it won't, it won't from an equity equity point of view and from a social justice point of view, uh, really be fair. So we want to, and again, sort of plug out to the trainees. Um, we are here to help you with that. We are specifically trying to think of training programs uh, that start very early on, but support you all the way through the pipeline in terms of being able to have a more inclusive community. And uh, by extension, therefore, have the trust from the community of participants because they trust the research community that's doing this. And I think that partnership is incredibly important. Could not agree more with you that. Let me ask you one more quick question was talking about trainees, which is, I know, like for myself, I was trying to decide whether to get an MD, an MD, PhD, a PhD. You're a physician scientist. How did you make that decision? What do you advise people who are trying to make that decision? Yeah. So, uh, again, I was extremely fortunate to be able to see that in action literally in the intramural campus of the National Institutes of Health and be able to see role models who were doing both. Um, 
The downside of doing both is that um, it does take you longer, uh, and so you have it's to. A commitment. It's a commitment. I think early, um, it does continue to tuck on you at both angles. So you have to continue with your, you know, being professional and good, and a good physician, and um, you know, keep up with your maintenance of certification, and all of those things. You have to be good at keeping up with the science. So you're doing your day job and your night job in terms of this. On the other hand, for me personally, um, the reward has been just literally the short term and the long term. So in the short term. I get to see patients um, and be able to see firsthand the impact that this has. But I can also see beyond the treatments that we could do today to have a vision of what we can do with the tomorrows. And that's what really, it sets my research agenda and really gives me the, you know, um, sort of payoff that I need, the incentive, the inspiration. Yeah, the inspiration to be able to write those grants and write those papers and do those experiments and fly long, long miles uh, to be able to meet with the right people. Um, it's that, like I said, short-term and long-term vision that it gives us. Um, what I will say is not everyone has to do that. So I don't think everyone has to be a physician scientist. I think there are some really great physicians that also do great research. So in other words, they went to medical school. They didn't go to graduate school. Um, there are other ways to get training along the way. So for those of you who are trainees that think about doing fellowships in terms of a subspecialty and or postdocs or even, you know, sort of get a second wind in midlife and do this. There are even grants from NIH to be able to do that. And so I think you can do good research as a physician. I do think you have to learn how to do that. It won't just come naturally. So I think you have to be rigorous about that. Um, for PhDs, I don't think you necessarily have to go to medical school. You don't have to be over a you know, cadaver and learn gross anatomy and be able to do all of those things. Um, but I do think based on your specific area of interest, it's important for you to understand the clinical context and the yeah. family's perspective. Uh, but lots of times we can do that. We can bring you up to speed in terms of the area that you're going to work in. Um, what I would say is for those PhDs, I think it is helpful, though, to at least discuss those areas with physicians because they understand better what the gaps are in terms of our care. And that first sort of significance area that you want to put in your grants is really helpful for the physicians to help you frame what the significance is of all that research you're going to do. Um, so, and again, I think it's great in terms of having those partnerships and um, for some people, they're gluttons for punishment and they'll go for their walnut programs. And for certain people, they have their eye on the prize and they can get there faster. And that's great too. Then they all can pay off. That'd be, uh, they, all, well, all of it, right? And, yeah. and, you know, all of this is no one person knows everything at it's more. So it's impossible. Well, thank you, Dr. Wendy Chung, for joining us for the ASHG podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Genetically Speaking. Join us again next week for another episode. <laughs>